Chapel, Mason City. If you have been coming to Calvary for some time, you've uh, been tracking along through the book of Ephesians, you've learned already that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians have to do with the believer's position in Christ or the things that God has done for us. When you get to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, it takes a turn. It starts going into the instruction for the Christian, how the Christian should live. If you have not been tracking along since the beginning of the book, I highly commend, recommend that you go and go to our website, calvarymasoncity.com, and listen to the first three chapters. Listen to the messages that are leading up to this because if you try to do the things that are in chapter four through the rest of the book without understanding what's going on in the first three chapters, you're going to fail miserably and you're going to wonder why this Christianity stuff doesn't work for you and it's going to be a crippling burden. You have to understand who you are in Christ before you can know how to walk in the way that Christ wants you to walk. Um, as one person puts it, you need to know how to sit and you know, then stand and then walk. And we see that naturally with children. Um, and we see that same thing is true in our spiritual lives. Believers need the empowering of the Holy Spirit in order to live the Holy Spirit-filled, obedient life. So in light of who we are in Christ and what God has done for us, then Paul gets in chapter 4 into the instructions of, you know, how we ought to live. We know who we are, what he's done, and now how to live. Today we're going to begin chapter 5, and verses 1 through 21 have a similar point, but last night, I planned on doing verses 1 through 21, and last night, I'm telling you, I was up until 2.30 in the morning and kind of did an audible because it was heavily impressed on my heart that we need to talk about the first section of the verses 1 through 21. And what I've called the message overall is walking in love, light, and wisdom. And then last night as I was sitting there, it just seemed that we needed to take a few moments maybe just to focus on what it means to walk in love. There's a tremendous amount of confusion regarding love today. The definition of love, what is actually loving, tremendous amounts of confusion. Tragically, the confusion about what it means to walk in love has made its way into the church. It's taken root. Today, we're going to spend a few moments looking at what the Bible says about walking in love. And I have to make a disclaimer. This is going to be incredibly offensive to some people here today, maybe, possibly, or maybe somebody listening. What is contained in this passage is incredibly offensive to many people in 2023 in Mason City, Iowa, and in this culture. Now, I want to say before we get going as another disclaimer here, I've been, you know, people sometimes confront you with your Christian beliefs and they'll say, you Christians believe this, you Christians believe that. And the thing that they don't understand is 
it's not my opinion, it's not my beliefs, they are, they're not my ideas. These are things that are coming straight from the Word of God that are going to be you know, preached. I don't have my own opinions when it comes to these things. When I came to Christ at 26 years old, I kind of had this revelation that most of my opinions were pretty useless, you know? And I determined that by looking at the state of life that I had put myself in through my own intellect. And so when I came, became a Christian, I made this choice to surrender my thoughts and my feelings to Christ and to let him establish my heart and to let him tell me what truth is because honestly at 26 years old in Southern California, the evidence was clear that I didn't really know much about life. You know, some of you have known me before and you say, well, I know that's true. And so when we communicate, when I communicate what's in the word here today, I want you to understand that if this is offensive to you, I don't mean to be offensive to you, I just want to be a faithful servant of the Word of God. Now, at Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through books of the Bible. And one of the main reasons we do that is so we have to deal with the things that the Scriptures say, even though it's uncomfortable. And I would tell you, if, if, if this was me up here, I would want to avoid this passage. I really would. So that being said, nothing in here is to incite hate, when a Christian doesn't understand that the war that we see, that the chaos in this world, that the destruction in this world, the sickness, when a Christian doesn't understand that the war is not between flesh and blood, but it's a spiritual battle, that Satan is the one that's behind, there's a real Satan and there's a real Satan that's behind the chaos that we see in this world today. When a Christian doesn't understand that and takes their anger out at other humans, that Christian is not Christ-like. And so what's in this message today is by no means to incite, incite hatred or uh, looking down at anybody. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have ever life, everlasting life. God loves everybody in this world, and the Bible says that it is his desire that they would all repent and be saved that they would all turn from their sin, all of us, that we would all turn from our sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ and walk after him. That's God's plan for people, for every person. And he loves everybody uh, the same when it comes to that. The Bible's also very clear that nobody comes to him except through Christ. Jesus says in John 14, verse seven, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, people will come at a Christian and say, you're bigoted, you're, you're so narrow-minded. What's the problem with you Christians? You're always saying that everybody else's religion isn't valid and yours is the only way. And I would just have to stop you and say, I didn't say it, you know? I didn't say these things. Jesus says these things. Now, if you have any sort of problem with me or another Christian that stands up what Jesus says, understand that you have a problem with the Word of God. And the difference between us then is you don't receive the word of God as the word of God. You may believe it's been tampered with. You may believe it's not all true. Some of it's true. And then so then the issue would be with people that believe that every word of the word of God is the word of God. And so that's the difference right there. We're, we're arguing about whether this is the word of God or not. And that's an issue you're going to have to sort out for yourself. That's an issue I think I've sorted out for myself. I'm standing on it. I've given my life to teaching it because I believe it is the word of God. But I want you to understand that if you have a problem with what's being said today, uh, that's not my intention. And I would really, you know, I don't know of a nice way to say it other than just your problem is with the Bible, it's not with me. So, that being said, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Not a very, you guys are like, oh man, what an intro. <laughs> 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Father in heaven, as we turn to this passage today, um, we approach this in humility, and we just ask that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, show us who we are, show us the truth, show us our Savior, and we do ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How do you walk in love? There are three things that stand out in this passage, actually two, and then the third one is the reason why number two is so serious. So the first thing is, is to imitate God. We walk in love, first of all, by imitating God in verses one and two. In verses three and four, we walk in love by avoiding all sexual sin. And Number three, verses five through six, this is why it is so important. This is the reason of why it, is in, why it is so important to avoid all sexual sin. And so this is going to be an incredibly, if you're, you know, if you've got kids in this room and uh, this is not going to be, this is R-rated, okay? So if you're not comfortable with that, now is the time to leave. Um, if you're watching online, this is the time to turn this off in front of kids if you're not ready for these sort of things. And so I just say that to warn you ahead of time. First of all, we walk in love by imitating God. Look at verse 1. It says, be imitators of God. This is, in the Greek, the word uh, mimitis, where we get the word mimic or mime. And what a mime does, you've seen the mime, like you're walking down the street and then they come up next to you and they do exactly what you're doing. That's what a mime does, is they mimic. And that's what Paul starts off by saying right there, is he says, as Christians, we need to be mimics. We need to mimic God. We need to do what he does. God is our example. As a Christian, we never compare ourselves to other humans. We compare ourselves next to God. He's our example. Let me make an obvious statement here just to get going. You can't mimic and imitate God if you don't know God, and you can't know God unless you know Christ because Jesus says, I've revealed the Father, and you can't know Christ unless you know the Bible. And so first of all, Paul says that we are to mimic God, to imitate Christ. There are many that are satisfied to know about God, to go to church. Paul says, imitate him. Live like him. Now, he goes on to say, as dear children. And I love this being Father's Day because the fact that God calls us children, you know, it means that he's a father. The Bible refers to Jesus' followers as the children of God meaning he's the father to all those who are in Christ. Now, you've heard the expression, like father, like son. That can, go, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, right? It's cute when a child imitates their father out, you know, mowing the lawn, maybe following behind with the lawnmower. You know, you got, got dads up here, and, you know. 
I received a picture a while ago from my grandmother, and I'm sitting on Grandpa's old Alice Chalmers yellow or orange tractor, and I've got his hat on, and I got his pipe, <laughs> and I'm sitting on the tractor, and, I, and I'm imitating my grandfather. And what a blessing it was to have such an example to, to follow, uh, and so blessed for his influence in my life. What a fatherly example. When a father lives a godly life, their child imitates them. Unfortunately, when a father lives in an ungodly lifestyle, their child imitates them. So here Paul is saying, God is your father. And like father, like son. It's only fitting that you would imitate your father. Now, and he says, and walk in love. Now he's going to tell us what he means by this in the context. You say, well, be an imitator of God. Well, how do I do that? Well, look at verse 2. It says, and walk in love. The Greek scholars tell us that the word and there uh, should be, it, it should read more like this. This would be more accurate. Uh, be imitators of God, that is, walk in love. In other words, the walk in love is describing what Paul means by how he said, you know, be an imitator of God. Well, how do I do that? Well, you be an imitator of God by walking in love. This is what Paul is saying in this passage. He's saying, as, as you mimic God, you should be mimicking the love that he has shown and that he shows. And walk in love, verse 2, as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. Walk in love how? As Christ has loved us and given himself for us. At the end, I want to talk about how Christ has loved us. I'd like to try to end on a positive note. Um, and so we'll come back to this. John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus is the ultimate example of God's love and the fact that he laid his life down for sinners. Not for people that loved him, not for people that thought he was wonderful. He laid his life down for sinners. And, he, and it goes on, Paul says, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You say, well, what does that mean? This is the New Testament connecting concepts and language of the Old Testament. In Old Testament times, God's people were required to bring animal sacrifices to the temple, and they were for different purposes. Some of them were complete consecration offerings. The animal would be burnt, and it was a symbol of saying, I want my whole life to be burnt up uh, in service to the Lord. There were peace offerings that symbolized the peace that we have through God, through the shed blood of the animal, the temporary peace that we have. Um, all of these offerings were looking forward to the final offering of Jesus Christ. If you want more information about that, you read the book of Hebrews. That's really what the whole thing's about. Christ is the ultimate offering for sin. And so Paul is connecting that language here. He's saying Jesus who gave himself for us, he's saying that was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It's kind of interesting. God always says in the Old Testament many times that the offerings were a sweet smell to him. Uh, God likes barbecue. <laughs> you know, that's pretty cool, right? You know, you're driving by a house and you're like... Wow, is that Lipton onion burgers? You know, like they got the ranch dressing mixed in with it. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. We're to imitate God. We're to mimic God. If we're to imitate God, we must avoid certain things in this case, in this passage, sexual sin, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let this not even be named among you. It's fitting for saints, neither filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, not, they're not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. When that word but comes in there, the Greek scholars tell us that this is a strong, like he's saying, but, you know, he's, this is a strong thing. Imitate God, but make sure you avoid what is next. That's the idea. 
in the language. You know the Bible, by the way, the Bible was written in Koine Greek and it's translated to English. And so sometimes, you know, we look at the original language to kind of get the tone, the inflection, or maybe a deeper meaning of the word. Now, these sins in verses 3 through 4 are the opposite of self-sacrificing love. The root of these sins is self-centeredness or covetousness. The word covetousness, it just means strong, greedy desire for something that is not yours. And so all of these sins that are listed here, they come from this covetousness, from this greediness, this selfishness, me wanting to please myself. The time this was written, AD 62, the Greco-Roman world where the Apostle Paul is writing the letter of Ephesians, the Roman Empire at this time was completely given over to sexual immorality, so much to the point to where it was even celebrated. Roman emperors are, go down in history. Some of the Roman emperors had you know, little boys as concubines that they lived and had sex with and things like this. That was the leadership they had gotten to the point to where they could sin in every different single way that you could ever think of with no conscience. And I will tell you, this is something just to take to heart as you read the scripture. When a person or a culture gets to the point to where they can sin and feel nothing in the conscience, that is a sign that that culture is under the judgment of God. When God turns you over to the lusts of your flesh, you're in a bad place. Every culture that has been something at some time and declined, Roman, Emperor, Roman Empire being an example, you learn this in school, is it was destroyed from the inside out. The immorality is what destroyed that culture. The destruction of the family, the destruction of marriage, and it imploded. And friends, it doesn't take a very spiritually discerning person to see that the United States is right at the cusp of this. This is my opinion. I don't know exactly, but I would tell you that when you look around and see people shamelessly sinning and flaunting their sin in people's faces, flaunting things that the Word of God prohibits in other people's faces, trying to indoctrinate children, that's a culture that is under God's judgment. God has turned this culture over to our own devices, and He's let us languish. You say Paul's culture sounds like our own. It does. Now, I want to talk about these words here. He says, let fornication not even be named among you. In the Greek, the word is the word pornea. And so what does that word sound like? It's pornography. Um, but it doesn't mean just pornography. The word pornea is a general term that describes all types of of sexual activity outside of marriage. All types of sexual activity outside of marriage are encompassed in that word pornea, which is translated fornication. That's according to Thayer's Greek Dictionary, to Strong's Greek Dictionary, to Zodiati's Greek Dictionary. These Greek scholars, all of these Greek scholars agree that that is what the definition of pornea is. Now, all types of sexuality sexual expressions outside of marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says this about marriage. It says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's Hebrews 13.4. What does pornea encompass? 
Pornea encompasses bestiality, which is sex with an animal, when a human has sexual intercourse with an animal or any kind of sexual activity with an animal. Pornea encompasses adultery. This is when a person is married and has a sexual relationship with someone who is not their spouse. That's considered adultery. This was a serious offense in the past in Israel's history that could result in being stoned to death. In fact, the law of Moses commanded that this would be done uh, in Old Testament. Economy. I mean, it's a serious... God hates this sin because it destroys families. God loves the family. God created the family. He created moms and dads to raise children in the sanctity and the safety of a home. And so he doesn't like sex outside of marriage. He calls it fornication, pornea. Now, this goes a little further. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 28, he says to you, he says, I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is saying is, He's like, get real, man. He's like, if you go and commit adultery with somebody and, you, and it started in your heart. So Jesus is saying, if you're looking around at people and you're thinking about having sex with them in your mind and you're entertaining that and you're just going with that, Jesus says, that's the same thing as, as committing adultery with them, you know, really. If it had its full expression, it would result in that, right? Now, listen, people struggle with these things and they're tempted with these things. That's, that's understanding. Some people have an incredible sex drive, you know, and they go around and they, and they see people. But if you're taking that to the Lord and you're saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in sin. I confess this to you. I'm dealing with this and I'm, I'm struggling with it and I'm confessing it and asking the Lord for his cleansing, deliverance, and forgiveness from it. That's different than me just sitting there going on in it and saying this is okay and saying, who cares? I don't care about this. If I can do that with no, you know, effect in my conscience, there's something wrong. Wrong, you know so there's God's grace for people that struggle with these things right and there's always forgiveness for somebody that'll come humbly to the Lord and ask for forgiveness the Bible says that he'll cleanse us you know that from all unrighteousness when we bring our sins to him the next thing that is encompassed in uh, pornea is homosexuality now, the Bible's incredibly clear that when men have sexual relationships with other men or when women have sexual relationships with other women, the Bible calls that homosexuality. The Bible calls it sodomy when men have anal sex with other men, and the Bible is clear about that in the Old and the New Testaments that God condemns that behavior. The Bible condemns that behavior clearly. Also, what's included in the word pornea would be pornography, the use of pornography, explicit materials like books, videos, or sexting for sexual pleasure. This defiles the marriage bed. This is outside of God's design for sex. More of what falls into pornea, incest, sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage. Uh, you may want to plug your ears, some of you. I don't know, oral sex, anal sex, sex with hands, all of these things outside of marriage are encompassed in pornea and are prohibited by the Lord. God has established the boundaries for sex. According to God's word, sex is permitted only in a marriage and a marriage is defined by God as a union between a man and a woman. This is clearly what the word of God says. Sex is a good thing. It is literally the physical act of marriage. 
God designed it for pleasure, for intimacy, and for reproduction. The organs of a male and a female are clearly meant to go together in these ways. The female organs are designed to have, to have pleasure. The male organs are designed to have pleasure. And God said that this is an incredibly powerful force, and so it needs to be within the covenant of marriage. This is where it is. It's so powerful, and, and it's such an important thing. It's such a beautiful thing that God has created that he has designed it in that context. That's what he means by when he says the marriage bed is not defiled. It means that sex in the marriage bed, that's where it belongs. Anything outside of that, that would be defiled in God's eyes, according to his word. Now he goes on to say, so he's, first of all, he says that fornication not even be named among you, that's all these things. And then he says uncleanness, that's just a term for lustful, impure living or motives. And then he says covetousness, which is interesting that that would be with these other two things. But I think the scholars say the idea is really that the covetousness just means a strong, greedy desire for something that's not yours. And essentially that's the root of what drives this other sexual illicit behavior uh, most times. He says in verse 3, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. The word saints does not mean a few special Christians. The word saint means all Christians. That's the way it's used in the uh, New Testament. Saint just means somebody that's been set apart. As a Christian, God has set you apart from the way the world does things, and he's placed you into his kingdom, into his family. And that's what that means. There. Says, this is not even fitting for somebody that has been put in the kingdom of God. Verse 4 says, Neither filthiness, foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Filthiness, um, coarse jesting, just stuff with the mouth. The filthiness, you know, have you ever been around a person that can take anything that you say and turn it into some sexual joke? That's the idea here. Somebody, you know how people go around and be like, that's what she said, you know? Like that's an example of that, you know, of just turning everything into some sexual innuendo. And uh, so Paul says that that's not, that's not fitting for a Christian. The Bible says that out of, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you listen to somebody talk long enough, you can hear what's in their heart. And he says it's fitting for a Christian. He goes on, verse 4, he says, but rather of giving thanks. When you listen to a Christian, if Christ is established in their heart and they know and they're in a relationship with Jesus and they're in his word and they're serving and living after him, you'll hear that in the way that they talk. You'll notice about the things they talk about and you'll also notice about the things that they do not talk about. Christ cleans up your language. So we need to walk by, in love by imitating God, avoiding all sexual sin. And, but why is this so serious? And I want to tell you that this message is about to get more intense. So brace yourself. He says, this is why this is so serious. Look at verse 5. Are you guys okay? Everybody's Okay. He says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, people that are committed to these sins that we have mentioned are not part of the kingdom of God. This is incredibly controversial to say this today. This will get you death threats. There are some Calvary chapels that are receiving death threats for preaching this. Christians are being attacked because they believe what the Bible says. There's a tremendous effort to confuse what the Bible says about these things. And it's plain as day right there that no one in these sins has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. 
The NLT translates it as this, verse 5. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of the world. Where it says a covetous person, which is an idolater, that term's kind of, I don't know if you know what the term idolatry means, but it simply means to put anything above God. It means to put anything above your obedience to what Christ has commanded of Christians. So whatever I put above Christ's commands in my life, that would be my idol and that would make me an idolater. Now when somebody, for instance, I'll just give you an example that this happens often. When a guy tries to talk his girlfriend into having sex before marriage and he says, oh man, I love you so much. I mean, we just need to do this because it's just, you know, I mean, it's a way we show our love to one another. And then they may even say stuff like this. Well, we're not married in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, we're already married. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I've heard all kinds of them. When somebody's trying to do that, what they're doing is they're putting their desire for pleasure above their obedience to Jesus Christ. So therefore, they're an idolater. Sex is their idol. Our culture worships sex. He says this is not fitting for Christians. That's just an example of idolatry. Some people put money before their commitment to Jesus Christ, they'll say, look, I, I just have to work all the time. I don't have time to be part of a church family like God commands. I don't have time to get involved with all these things. Well, then you're putting whatever's getting in, you know, stuff's getting in the way of your obedience to Christ, you know? So you're suffering as an idolater. Now, he tells the Ephesians, walk in love by imitating God, avoiding all sexual sin, and why this is so serious. Listen, this is so serious because the people who are in these sins, committed to these sins, are not in the kingdom of God. They have no, they can't get into the kingdom of God like this. Now, I want to be very clear about something. People stumble in these areas. We're humans, we have temptations. People have same-sex desires. People struggle with these things. People have stumbled in these things in their past. What this passage is saying is when somebody is committed in these lifestyles, patterned in them, has no feeling in their conscience that anything wrong is happening, and trying to say, I don't care what your Bible says. I don't care what God says. This is right. Love is love. I'm going to do what I want. That person falls into this category. But I guarantee you there are lots of people that are in these lifestyles, committed to these things, but they're struggling in their conscience and they're wrestling these things out. That's a person that God hasn't completely given over to this. People struggle in these things. God wants to set people free from these things. He wants to set them free and bring truth into their life and call them, like I said in the beginning, he wants to call us all to repent of things that he calls sinful, and he wants us to follow Jesus Christ and live his way. Now, God's not a cosmic killjoy. God doesn't prohibit these things because he's just trying to keep people from fun. God as creator knows the things that his children should be involved in and shouldn't. It's just like when you try to tell your kids, no, you can't eat the whole package of Oreos in one sitting. Well, you're so mean. You don't love me. You only hate me. I don't hate you. I'm trying to keep you from destroying yourself. 
That's why God puts prohibitions on things. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28 that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God has set up things in such a way that if you will do it your, his way instead of your way, all things will work together for your spiritual good. He wants to bless you. He wants to spend eternity with you in heaven. He wants you to live a life that's filled with blessing. People don't understand that. They think God is trying to hurt them when he's trying to help them. That statement in verse 5 has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul was speaking to Christians in a culture that was completely given over to sexual immorality, that celebrated homosexuality, incest, adultery, pedophilia. All those things were embraced and celebrated in the Roman Empire. And he says, look, Christians, Ephesians, he's talking to the church. He says, look, church, I don't want you to be confused for a moment. These people that are engaged in these things that don't care what God says, they're not responding to their conscience. He says, that's, that's not good. He says, they don't have any place in heaven. They're not getting there in that state. Now, friends, when Lauren Daigle was asked recently if she, in, you know, what the Bible says about homosexuality, she says, honestly, um, I can't answer on that quote. She says, quote, in a sense, I have too many people that I love that they are homosexual, so I don't know. I actually had a conversation with someone last night about it. I can't say one way or the other, I'm not God. So she says this, she goes on and says, so when people ask questions like that, my, this is my go-to. I say, read the Bible and find out for yourself. And when you find out, let me know because I'm learning too. Okay, so Lauren, turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and read what it says because the Bible is inc incredibly clear on it. The singer from Wren Collective he says he doesn't know where he stands on this. He says, however, when you don't use people's preferred pronouns, that's hate speech, and every Christian should use people's preferred pronouns. I mean, is that true? We should, we should lie? We should go against our conscience? I mean, I, I believe that you're telling me that I should lie because, you know, you can make babies or not. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I, I know that's how it works. All medical Science agrees that people are either, they can dig your bones up after they've been in the ground a thousand years and they can tell whether you're a biological male or a biological female. And so you're asking me to participate in this lie. You're asking me to go against my conscience. I don't care if you want to protect, you know, if you want to call yourself that, that's fine. But the minute that you try to force me to try to participate in something that I think is a lie, that's where the problem is. Will a gay person be accepted into heaven as you see it? Oprah asked the famed pastor Joel Osteen. He says, I believe they will. He says, sometimes we look at being gay as a bigger sin than being proud or not telling the truth. I don't think God categorizes sins. That's exactly right. Joel Osteen is exactly right in that. Sin is sin, and everybody's called to repent of everything that God prohibits, come to Christ and renounce their sin and follow Jesus. That's, he's right about that point. But I don't think he's read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, or understood it clearly to make the comment that he started with. Brandon Robertson, not sure if you're familiar with him, but he positions himself as a gay theologian. He says, after 10 years of critical study, I have become utterly convinced that the Bible does not condemn LGBTQ plus identities, sexual expression, or relationships in any form. 
I don't know what Bible he's been studying for the past 10 years. We've been studying this one for 30 minutes. And it's plain enough that a guy like me can understand it. There's something going on in the culture, friends, where people are trying to force lies upon children. In America, you are completely free to be and to do what you want. That's the beauty of America. I believe in free speech. I believe in the God-given right that every human has. God gives this right, by the way. I believe in the God-given right for you to do whatever you want to do. But when you try to force and indoctrinate other people into things, that's where there's a problem. We live in a world today where lunacy is getting a stronghold. When a swimmer, Riley Gaines, gets attacked by a vicious mob because she tries to stand up and say, it's not right that a biological male wins women's swimming awards. When that kind of stuff happens in, the, in a country, lunacy is setting in. One of the major attacks that Satan has unleashed on this world is this confusion about sexuality and gender identity. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, please. This is not an isolated thing that Paul talks about in this passage. You might say, I don't know about this term homosexuality. If it falls under pornea, people like Brandon Robertson are trying to debate that, trying to go against thousands of years of Greek scholarship. But if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He lays it all out there, plain as day. The problem that people have is not with Christians. It could be with Christians. If you're a Christian jerk, then rightfully so, people should have problems with you. You shouldn't be a jerk. But the, the issue really comes down to the Word of God. Is this what it says in front of you? Or is this not what it says? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, turn there, please. Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read verses 18 through 32 because that would take about 11 minutes. Probably less because I talk fast. I haven't even had any coffee today though, so <laughs> praise the Lord. Romans 1, 18 through 32, it starts out, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What he means right there is he says that God's wrath is being poured out upon people that have turned from him. You can look around and you can see it everywhere. When God turns people over to their own devices and they go nuts because of it, you can see this is evidence that God's judgment is poured out upon people that want to reject him. And he says that they suppress the truth. He says everybody, every single human knows there's a God, knows there's a such thing as right and wrong. And when they step out and they want to live a life that goes contrary to God, they have to do something to their own conscience to ignore that. That's what, that's what it says in Romans 1, 18 and 19. But I want to jump down to verse 21. 
He says, because although they knew God, in other words, any human can tell that there's a God, any, any human can look around and say, there's a creation, there must be a creator. It's just common sense, right? He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So in other words, they didn't give him the proper worship and the respect that he's due as the creator. They said, I know there's a God, but I'm going to suppress the truth. I don't care. I'm not going to honor him as God. And so if you go down to verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, the definite article. It's a specific lie. And that lie, as most scholars believe what it's talking about, is the lie that Eve bit in the Garden of Eden that if you eat this fruit, you will be as God. So they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Now go down to verse 32. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not yet. Verse 26. He says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Sounds like a headline, doesn't it? Verse 32, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. This is heavy, man. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. God looks at people that okay this, and he says, you're guilty. He looks at churches that say, we need to be affirming and welcome this and start telling people that the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. God says, you're approving of it. He says, you're guilty. I understand this is incredibly difficult to navigate. You've got homosexual friends. You've got people that live in different lifestyles. You know people that are having sex with their girlfriend outside of marriage. I get it. It's an incredibly difficult person for, you know, a place for a Christian to be because you're trying to hold the truth and you're trying to be loving and to navigate those things, is, it's incredibly difficult at times. I get it. That's why, you know, we're going to come and we're going to conclude with how Jesus loved us because that's what he says. He says, walk in love like Jesus and we'll end up there, Okay. So I understand this is incredibly difficult. I used to DJ in the rave scene in Los Angeles for 10 years. I know all about this other culture, roommates, dear friends. So I get it. I want to make this point again, that people that have stumbled in these areas in life or even are continue to stumbling and struggling with these things, this does not mean that they have no chance to go to heaven. People that struggle in these things can come to Christ. His arms are open to forgive. The blood of Christ was shed for all ungodliness, and people can come to him and receive forgiveness. Anybody, doesn't, you've never messed up your life too bad. You've never done anything that's too bad. You can come to Christ. You can have forgiveness. That's something you need to communicate to your friends and family that he's willing to forgive. He wants to restore. He wants to put people on the right path. He wants to bring healing to their lives. He wants to eliminate the confusion in their lives. He wants to bless them with simplicity, with love, peace. God only warns about these things because they have a bad consequence. I remember my grandpa used to warn me about this knife. I used to have this knife. I lived on a farm, and I'd carry the thing around all the time, and it was dull, but I, and I always go like this with my leg. I was a kid, and I thought I was a ninja. 
you know? So, I mean, I spent a long time thinking I was a ninja, really. And so what I would do is I would swipe this thing on my leg and, you know, pretend I'd fake my mom out. She'd be like, oh, you know, but it was so dull it wouldn't cut anything, right? So one day, Grandpa said, don't sharpen that thing, you know? And so one day, though, I went to Grandma's electric sharpener in the back of the can opener, electric sharpener, and I put that knife in there and uh, took it out, and just as I'd always done, whoosh, and I have never seen a cut so deep, it was this leg, where you could see the white part in that. Oh, it was just disgusting. I was totally surprised, I mean. But Grandpa was warning me because there were consequences. That's the same reason that God warns anybody with the things in His Word. We've redefined love as we think it needs to be affirming of every single thing. I'm not going to affirm things in your life that are going to hurt you. What kind of a friend would I be to do that? What kind of a person would I be to affirm things that hurt people? Verse 6, we need to take this to heart. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, do not be fooled by those who try to excuse their sins. For the anger of God will fall on those who disobey him. Someone may call themselves a Christian while engaging in these things. Do not be confused. If they're committed, they don't think anything in their conscience. They say, to heck with God, to heck with his word. I don't care what he says. Do not be deceived by them. Do not be deceived by celebrities that are probably more concerned with selling albums than they are proclaiming the truth. I would tell you, Christians, that we need to be very careful about celebrity Christianity because these people are starting, they start to make so much money for the things that they're doing and money, you know, is a terrible master. You'll start compromising. Don't let anybody deceive you, he says in verse 6, with empty words. These things are what brings the wrath of God. People that are committed to them are going to be under his wrath. Let's wrap this up here in conclusion. We're to walk in love. You go back to verse 1. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. First of all, how did Christ love us? I just want to make a few points here. We'll just wrap up. We have three minutes here. How did Christ love us? First of all, he was honest in his love. Jesus was honest. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus was honest with people that he loved. He said, look, you can be as sincere as you want in other religions. It doesn't matter your sincerity, your conduct. You could be the greatest Buddhist in the world. You know, I've met Buddhists that are incredible incredibly nice people, loving, giving, but that's, that's really not the issue. You know, Jesus says, I, I don't, you, you come through me, that's the only way you go. Praise the Lord, he made it so simple because I wouldn't have figured it out. <laughs> Jesus was honest in his love, and also in Luke 13, 3, Jesus speaking to a bunch of religious hypocrites. Let me read to you what he says. He says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus looked at these people and he said, look, unless you turn from your sin and embrace him as Savior, you will perish. Jesus was honest in his love, first and foremost. If you're struggling with how to be loving to somebody, Jesus was honest in his love.
Now, let's balance that with this. Some of you are really good at being honest, but you're doing it in a way that's like cayenne pepper rather than honey, you know? And some Christians are very good at barking truth at other people. And I'll tell you, for the most part, people don't, they don't they're not going to listen to you, you know? Jesus was like that sometimes. You know that the harshest people, you know, the harshest treatment Jesus ever gave out, do you know who it was to? It was to religious hypocrites. It was to people that pretended like they were all done up on Sunday and yeah, yeah, but then during the week they were all fake, living in sin, pretending to be somebody they're not. Religious leaders that were keeping people from the kingdom of God, trying to put their religion on people, using them for money and power. Those are the people Jesus was the hardest on, always. In fact, it's never recorded in the Bible of Jesus being hard on anybody but those people. Let's balance Jesus' honesty. While being true and perfect in all things, sinners were drawn to him. You ever think about that? Luke 15, 1 says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Now, there was something about Jesus where he was totally not compromising on the truth at all, but yet sinners and tax collectors, people, outcasts, were drawn to him. Let that sit in. The lost people wanted to come to him because they heard that he was offering a way out. They saw the love in his eyes. The story of Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus, the little tax collector, the wee little man? Remember the song from Sunday school? Zacchaeus, the wee little man, wee little man is he. He ran up in the tree and ran up in the sycamore tree. I don't remember how it goes. I wish that song went with it. It would be like good timing. Little Zacchaeus was the tax collector. He ran up in a tree to get you know, above the mob so he could see uh, and just get some Jesus. And then he had Jesus come over to dinner at his house. Well, Jesus invited himself over. The point is the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the down and out, the outcasts, they were drawn to Jesus because he was offering life. And they knew it, and they knew he was loving. How else did Jesus loved us, love us? He loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 26, Jesus went out of his way to offer forgiveness to a woman at a well. Do you remember the story? Jesus went to Samaria which Jews never went through Samaria, but he went out of his way to go to Samaria to meet a woman at a well that was getting water at noon. And it was really weird that she was getting water at noon because most of the women got water in the morning. But she was coming to get water at noon because she was trying to avoid the women because she'd had five husbands. And she was living in an adulterous, fornicating relationship right at the time. And Jesus goes out of his way and he goes to that well and he offers her forgiveness. In fact, he says, I know what you're doing. You've had five husbands. The guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she goes, whoa, how did you know this? You're a prophet. And, he, and then essentially the conversation goes. He says, you know what? Don't sin. Just, get, just stop doing this. Just stop living like this. And he offers her forgiveness. She goes back to town and she says, I'll become see, see the guy that told me everything I ever did. But she was set free. Because God has that ability. Even today, the Holy Spirit looks into your conscience, looks into your life. He looks into your thoughts, your past and everything. He says, I know every single thing about you. I want to give you forgiveness. And when that happens, you run back to your town. And you say, let me tell you about the guy who knows everything I ever did. 
Jesus loved us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. You know a candle, when, the, when the, you blow it out and it's still got the little glow part? Jesus won't quench that. When somebody's just hanging on by a thread, he comes into their life and he wants to fan that into a flame again. He's just, he loves people. Jesus is drawn. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. You know what that means, save to the uttermost? That means the very worst of the worst of the worst thing that you could ever think about, the worst sin you've ever been in. Jesus walks in the room with that and goes, hey, let me get right up next to you because I, my heart breaks for you and I want to encourage you. I want to build you up again. That's Jesus Christ. He's drawn from the uttermost. He saves people from the uttermost. I like to say he saves people from the guttermost. That's me. Jesus sees sinners as sheep without a shepherd. He's drawn to those in the deepest of their sin to offer forgiveness, to offer new life, all while never compromising on the truth. It is time for Christians to, you know, it's, it's not a time for weak Christianity. It's not a time for people to let the lies of culture push them into a corner. It's also not a time to be bigoted, hateful, alienated Christians in the holy huddle. It's time to be like Jesus, who never compromised, yet his heart was completely drawn to brokenness to offer forgiveness to sinners. It's time to be like Jesus. We're to walk in love, imitating Jesus in his love toward us, avoiding sin, not affirming it, not encouraging others in it, but yet living as Jesus' representatives. We're to bring his love to the darkest places. I want to leave you with that thought. He told the truth. He never compromised, yet sinners were drawn to him. We live in complicated times, but let's ask the Lord to put that into our hearts, how Jesus has loved us. So, Father.